We're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now, so if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 7, and I want to thank Wesley Pope again. Last week, uh, he and I have been friends for 10 years. When he first planted his church, they, they planted their church right next door to us, so we began meeting together and praying together, and so it's just been fun to stay in touch, and uh, he shared with us last week from Daniel chapter 6 what was the last, um, maybe I should say, normal story in Daniel. Uh, we're now moving into this, this new frontier in the book of Daniel where there's going to be a lot of these really bizarre, really strange dreams and visions. It's often called apocalyptic literature. The word apocalypse literally means revealing. So the last book of our Bible is Revelation. The Greek is apocalypse. It's, it's a revealing of hidden things. Kind of like we have our normal lives we live and we know there's a spiritual world. We know there are greater realities of of what is true and what is right, of good versus evil that are taking place, heavenly realities. And these apocalyptic visions are those heavenly realities that we as kind of normal creatures can't fully comprehend, but God is revealing parts of it to us through these dreams, through prophets like Daniel and apostles at the end of our Bible, like the Apostle John. So one of the things I want to stress as we start studying this section is that we believe that even though this is possibly the weirdest kind of scriptures that we have, there's a lot of it sprinkled throughout the Bible, it's still valuable. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we open it up and we listen. And that that matters, especially when we come to places in the Bible that are kind of weird and confusing to us. Especially those places we have to say, wait, Jesus said this was important. Jesus is going to speak to me through this part of his words. So I want to challenge you, if you are the kind of person that usually skips over these parts of the Bible, I have to admit, I don't read these parts of the Bible as much as the other easier to understand parts. Um, but we have to recognize God still speaks to us through these sections of Scripture. The Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. This week, as we move into Daniel chapter 7, the title is, Don't Fear the Monsters. Don't Fear the Monsters. These are bad dreams and scary dreams. You could also say not only is this apocalyptic, this is also like the horror movie genre of the Bible here. There are scary monsters that are being revealed, but the main point, I believe, of this passage is that we should not utterly fear these monsters. We shouldn't fear these monsters more than we fear God himself. We should trust that God is still in control, and that's the major theme of the entire book of Daniel. So as we unpack these weird stories, some basic principles are we're going to look for big ideas and we're going to kind of move from the big ideas to the lesser ideas because if we get lost in the details, uh, it's endless, right? Like we could just be confused and argue all day long about all the little details, but there are big ideas that are clear, so we want to stick to those big ideas. Big scary monsters and we have safety in God and the reality that he is king. A few years ago, we were at my mother-in-law's for Thanksgiving, uh, and my son runs into the living room. We were all kind of relaxing. My son runs into the living room, and he's like sweating, and you can tell his heart is beating really fast, and he's breathing really rapidly, and he's kind of freaked out. Um, and if you know my son, he, he's a lot like me. He's a pretty calm person, right? Like he's pretty laid back, pretty chill, pretty quiet. So we were like, what, what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, uh, Gaga, that's what we call my mother-in-law, Gaga's lived in this place, you know, for years and years, and so he's been coming since he's a little kid, and he'd never explored the woods behind her house. 
all these years, there's like this three or four acre lot behind her house, behind her fence, and he's like, you know what? He's like 19 or 20 at the time in college. He's like, I just jumped over the fence and I wanted to walk around the woods. And it was really peaceful. It was beautiful. And he's walking around. And then he started to hear the growl and snarl of some scary monsters, right? Some, some gigantic, I think they were German shepherds, but some gigantic, aggressive dogs that were almost as big as him and started barking and growling and chasing him. Fortunately, he was still in pretty good shape as a college student, and he was able to sprint back to the fence and just jump right over the fence and make it back into the safety of his grandma's house and yard. Well, we face a lot of different scary monsters in this life. It's probably easiest to relate as we look at beast visions to relate to beasts that we've been around, like dogs. Uh, Recently, actually just last week, there was a viral video. Did y'all see the viral video of a mountain lion that was chasing a guy? That was pretty scary, right? We don't see a lot of that in our everyday life, Um, but these monsters, these beasts, represent the unjust kingdoms of humanity. They represent, in this dream, the kingdoms of men. And so we know what it's like to be around a scary beast like a dog or mountain lion, maybe, Um, But we also know what it's like to have unjust rulers. We know what it's like to have a boss that's unfair. We know what it's like to have an authority figure who was supposed to protect us, but they were instead abusive. And what we see in this text is that, yeah, monsters will hurt us. And there's a common sense fear that's appropriate, right? My son was wise to run from the dogs. But in a greater sense, we're going to see this kind of view from heaven that says we don't have to ultimately be afraid. God is going to conquer the monsters of this world. Evil, injustice, the scary things in this world, the sin of humanity, God will defeat. So let's read the first part of this vision where the monsters are introduced in Daniel chapter 7. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So first year Belshazzar, we're kind of going back in time a little bit because we know Belshazzar's already died um, because of the historical stories. So he's kind of going back in time and now sharing the visions. The visions of his head as he lay in bed, then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. So he's like interpreting it now for us, right? He's not giving us every single detail. He's, he's interpreting and helping us to understand what he has seen and that he's already kind of struggled through. Verse 2 says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So it was a big storm, right? That's what that means. Big storm stirring up the sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now remember, this is the scariest place in the ancient world, the sea. The sea is less scary to us today because of our technology and our boats Um, And we have ways to survive the sea, right? It's less scary. But in the ancient world, especially in Mesopotamia and Babylonian mythology, the sea stood in for evil, right? And, And in our Bible as well, the sea is a symbol of evil, of hell, of the abyss, of sea monsters, of the devil himself, right? So the sea is a place where everything's out of control. We've talked about in this series what to do when the world falls apart. Our world feels out of control. And that's the kind of vision that Daniel here has. He's got these monsters coming out of the sea, the place of chaos, disorder, and evil. 
So verse 3, these beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. A lot of details on that first beast. Verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Another scary monster. Verse 6, after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. Another scary monster. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its teeth or with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and behold, it had ten horns. I think that different thing is important here as we interpret what these beasts, monsters mean. It was different. This one was like in another category. It had ten horns, verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, something bragging, blaspheming, being proud and haughty. So just another insight for you, horns represent rulers and kings throughout biblical poetry and prophecy. And so we've got these different beasts that represent, we believe, different kingdoms, we're going to be told, and this parallels Daniel chapter 2. If you're looking for parallels to study this more on your own, this also parallels Revelation, Revelation chapter 13 and 14, and really all of Revelation, but specifically in those sections. And so we've got these monsters, we've got these beasts, and as I said, the big idea that Daniel tells us again and again is that God is in control. And that the people of God can continue to trust Him. And although we have a common sense fear, right? If someone's trying to hurt you, you run away. That makes sense. But we don't, overall, throughout history, want to be overwhelmingly afraid of these monsters. Don't fear the monsters because God is in control. These monsters represent evil men, evil humanity. We can trust that God, in the end, God wins. So if you don't remember anything else, about the interpretation of prophecy and the end times, remember this, Jesus wins, okay? That's the bottom line. Let me pray for us, and then we'll try to unpack this more. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And again, we just confess and admit to you, Lord, some parts of scripture are harder and more distant from us, but we believe all of scripture is breathed out by you, that it is inspired, that it is your word to us, and that your word speaks, Lord, with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we want to we wanna talk to you. We want to listen to you. We want to sit at your feet. So God, help us overcome the obstacles, the cultural distance, though just the weird factor here, and help us to uh, receive the impact you want us to receive from these scary visions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, my big idea is don't fear the monsters. We've got scary monsters, and then as the the vision unfolds, and as Daniel adds some interpretation to it, he's going to give us reasons to not fear the monster. So three big reasons to not fear the monsters. Number one, God is judge. We're going to see a heavenly vision of God as judge, and that's the kind of revealing apocalyptic thing, right? You and I don't see 
God as judge in an obvious everyday sense, we have to have the eyes of faith to see what is taking place in heaven. That indeed God is judge, God is the king of the universe, and he does reign. He is sovereign, he is in charge. So God is judge. It's the first reason we don't have to have this out-of-control fear of the monsters of sin and death and evil kingdoms and even evil rulers in this world. The second reason we don't have to fear the monsters is because Jesus is the answer. There's a weird question that comes up from this vision, but also from all of history and all of the Old Testament. And that question, that puzzle is solved in Jesus. Jesus is the answer. That's another reason we don't have to fear the monsters. And then the third reason is that humanity is being renewed. Humanity is being renewed. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. God is doing something in our lives. It's not just a heavenly vision up there, totally apart from us, but he's changing us in the process. He's making us everything that we were designed to be. Now, just a little more insight on these monsters. Again, a parallel is Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, there was a vision of a statue that had like gold and then silver and then bronze, right? Remember that? And we were told it represented different kingdoms. We were told up front that the first kingdom was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, right? And that's pretty clear to see in this unfolding of kingdoms as well. Why? Well, because the first beast, the first monster, is a lion with wings, which was the primary symbol of power in ancient Babylon, right? So in our children's story this morning, they talked about how different teams have different symbols, right? And we just easily recognize those symbols. I see a terrible symbol of an eagle here in the auditorium this morning. We know that represents a scary people group in Philadelphia, And so we have these beasts, these monsters that we use in our society as well. We use emojis. We use mascots. You know, we use different symbols that are just obvious to us in our culture. And that would have been obvious in their culture. But also, there's a little detail that clarifies it, right? This eagle with wings, or this lion with eagle's wings, the wings were clipped and it was humbled. But then we're told that it was raised up on its feet like a man and given the mind of a man. And so that matches up beautifully with what actually happened in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He was restored to his true humanity by having faith in God, right? If we don't have faith in Jesus, if we don't exalt him, then we exalt ourselves and we become like the serpent in the garden. We become beasts. We become monsters. So big picture for all of the Bible, it starts off, with humanity being told that they are to have this purpose to rule and reign, and they give that up, and they start following the beast, the monster, the dragon, the serpent in the garden. And as we do that, we become like monsters. I don't know if y'all have ever heard psychologists talk about the structure of our brain, but when we make rash decisions, stupid decisions, impulsive decisions, when we make decisions in fear and panic, our uh, fight-or-flight instinct, or even our addictive responses to things, psychologists say that that comes from the base of our brain, the most primitive bottom part of that brain. They call it, have you all heard this before? Our lizard brain. (laughs) So I want to say God's just given us a, a nice little picture, even in biology, to remind us, you know what? When we are reacting sinfully in addiction, in fight or flight, we're often reacting like a lizard, like a serpent, like a dragon. And that matches, again, big picture story of the Bible. That we can either walk in faith, obeying God, trusting that he's good and he loves us, or we can walk in fear and rejection of God, 
and we're following in the footsteps of the serpent, and we, come, we become beasts and monsters. Now, the other monsters are hard to decipher exactly what they are. I'm just going to tell you what I think they are, but I'm going to tell you that you know, commentators and scholars disagree on all this, right? So I'm just going to give you my perspective. I tend to have kind of a middle-of-the-road perspective. I try to take into account the different extremes of Christian history and say, all right, well, this middle way kind of makes sense to me. So I see these beasts as representing the coming kingdoms, and that would be then the Medo-Persian kingdom that comes next with the bear, and then the Greek kingdom with the leopard that's also got wings, and it's super fast, right, because Alexander the Great just conquered the world with lightning fast speed, and that makes sense too. And then we've got this crazy powerful kingdom, the Roman Empire, I think is what the final kingdom represents, but I would say Roman Empire plus. That's my interpretation because we see in the text this last beast was different than the others, right? So there was something different going on here. And throughout the history of Bible interpretation, we often see like near fulfillments of things being fulfilled very close to the time of a prophecy and then future fulfillments. So I think we see a near fulfillment in the Roman Empire and in the power of the Roman Empire, but we're still awaiting a future fulfillment of this kind of evolving or devolving horns and horns and more horns and then this ultimate evil ruler that's going to be that little horn that's like talking smack, right? Like in Christian history, we tend to talk about that character as the Antichrist. So I do believe that there's still future this kind of future ultimate leader that's going to take place who's going to be like the worst of the worst. We call him Antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of lawlessness. But just to be clear, we want to not get too caught up in like naming who that you know, terrible person is because that's been done again and again in history and then we've been wrong. Because in 1 John 2, we're told, man, there are many Antichrists, Right? There are many beasts, and that's part of what the vision is telling us too. There are all kinds of kingdoms that rise up and fall down, and God is still in charge. So do we believe there are still some weird future fulfillments? I do. Not all Christians do, but yeah, I do. But what we ultimately learn here is that we don't have to fear any of these monsters, even the worst of the worst, because God is judge, Jesus is the answer, and humanity is being renewed. Okay, now we'll move into the main points. Introduction only took 18 minutes, so we're doing good. Uh, The timer is not helping me. I just keep going longer and longer. Main point one, God is judge. So we see this in verses 9 through 12. God is judge. And so we'll unpack starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So, biggest kingdom anyone's ever seen gathered, right? That's the heavenly vision. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, right? The other beasts, they dwindled. The ultimate beast, the scariest beast of all, the the monster of all monsters, utterly destroyed. Why? Because God is judge. And this is part of what is revealed to us. We see heaven. Oh, 
God is still on the throne. God is still king. God is still in charge. God is sovereign, we like to say. And that gives us great hope, right? Right now, our nation is divided. We have worries about disease. We have worries about injustice. We have worries about political corruption. And we all have different opinions about it and what the solution is. And you know what? The ultimate solution is God himself. We do the best we can. We vote our conscience. We try to make our city better. We try to love our neighbor. Yes, we we care about the little things, but the ultimate solution is that God is judge. God is judge. And so we're looking to him to encourage us, to, to guide us. Now, this ancient of days, right? This means he's from eternity past. is the oldest one that's ever been, the ancient of days. It says his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Again, another picture of white. And so this white is not to be interpreted in the way our world does or in the history of our country where black and white has taken on racial meanings. It's, it's not what it means at all, right? It's, it's clean versus unclean, right? In the ancient world, uh, well, really, just like today, like if, if I have a white shirt, it doesn't stay white very long, right? <laughs> it quickly gets dirty, right? And so this is like an unusual thing in their world, like it is in ours, but even more unusual in their world to have clothing that stays clean, right? So that's kind of like a mark of otherworldliness here. But also, he has white hair. Well, what does that mean? Well, in ancient cultures, sadly, we don't do this very well in our culture, but in ancient cultures, age was respected. It was seen as a mark of wisdom, and he's seen as like the ultimate elder, right? The ultimate wise one who was wiser than any other wisdom. But more than that, he is the God of the universe. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. I grabbed a a picture online of a smelting operation because we talked before about the way that fire purifies metal, right? And so fire in Scripture is both something that judges evil, but it also purifies those who are holy. What does that mean? Well, in our own life, the fire of God burns away that which is evil. When we're in close relationship with God by faith, we uh, and the Holy Spirit can't tolerate that evil in our hearts to continue. We come under conviction. We have to confess it. We have to continue turning and running from it. We can't just keep walking in wickedness. It begins to gross us out in a new way it didn't before we knew Jesus, right? It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we just do everything right all the time. It just means we can't stand to to live with it. We can't sit in it, right? It bothers us because there's this burning of God's perfect Holy Spirit within us that smelts away, that purifies away that evil. And so God as judge will ultimately judge all evil. This last monster that's so scary and so rebellious. And again, everybody argues about who is this last ultimate monster. We don't know, but God's going to defeat him because God is in charge and God is judge. And so we have to recognize in our culture, we kind of don't like judgment. We kind of don't like authority. I already mentioned this. We kind of don't like to respect our elders. We kind of don't like people being in charge. We kind of are cynical. We don't trust judges and authority and power. But God is the ultimate judge. He's the one judge who judges perfectly with perfect righteousness. He never makes a mistake. We long for that. And this apocalypse, this revelation, this unveiling of heaven shows us, yeah, there is a judge like that. There's a judge that always makes the right decision. He always does 
what is good and what is right. And this destroys the power of evil and wickedness in our world, right? The power of the lesser beasts and monsters dwindles. The power of the ultimate monster is just blown away, destroyed by the power of this judge who judges evil in the world. So what are we to do with that? How do we apply that we don't have to fear and be out of control because God is judge? Well, the New Testament gives us very specific ways to to do this, right? To do this, God is judge. And I can live in peace and not fear because God is judge. Here are some verses in the New Testament that that connect these dots for us. James 4.11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So so let me paraphrase that. James is saying, don't speak evil of other people. Don't put yourself in the place of being a judge. Why? Because God is the judge. God's law is the standard. So that gives us a freedom of saying, man, I don't have to be freaked out about all the evil I see around me and have to like, oh, I got to cut the, you ever played the whack-a-mole at the carnival or the festival of Six Flags? You know, the mole pops up and you hit it with a hammer. That's how we feel sometimes, right? We're stressed out. There's just evil in the world and it's popping up all over the place and I got to whack it. I got to stop it. It's, it's, on, it's my job to defeat it all. No, no, God is judge. God is judge. And what does that translate to in our community? Well, we don't have to speak evil about one another. Isn't that great? It's like a burden taken off of our back. James says it slightly differently in James 5.9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And don't grumble against each other. And what do you think James would say to our use of social media in the modern world? Or even in just the conversations that we have casually? What would he say to us? He'd say, God is judge. And when we're talking smack about each other, when we're speaking evil about one another, when we're grumbling about one another, that's a manifestation of our fear. That, that we feel out of control and we don't trust that God is really judge and that he's going to defeat evil and we've got to do something about it right now. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean we are to be passive. God has given all of us a jurisdiction, right? If you're a parent, you better judge the evil in your household, right? If you're a boss, you've got to judge, right? We, we are given jurisdiction to confront the things that God has put in our, our area of leadership, right? So there's just common sense judgments we have to make. And yeah, that's not okay. I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to I want to push back. Right, so there is a, a basic right and wrong judgment we have to make, but this is kind of a bigger possessing of us that takes place where we're just freaked out all the time and we're talking smack about each other, we're grumbling, we're gossiping, we're speaking evil about one another because we're not living at peace. We're not showing grace to one another because we don't trust that God is really the judge. First Peter 2 says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, a lot of you are soldiers, right? And you have the God-ordained power of the sword that God has said, I'm going to give soldiers and policemen the power of the sword to judge justly. And that is a sacred trust you've been given. But the church doesn't hold that sword. And as individuals in our relationships with one another, we don't hold that sword, right? When you put on the uniform, you might hold that sword as a, as a soldier or as a policeman. But, but as individual folks, I don't, I don't hold that sword to my friends. I don't hold that sword as a preacher of the gospel. So we need to 
we need to clarify those different jurisdictions that we have. Jesus didn't revile. Jesus didn't fight back. His church, right? Remember Peter goes with the sword and cuts off the dude's ear? He's like, no, that's not how we're building this church. The way our church is going to move forward and accomplish world domination is not with a sword. It's by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's entrusting ourselves to God as ultimate judge. There's a lot more in 1 Peter 2. I encourage you to check that out as well. So we're going to move on to the second point, which is Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer, and we see this in verses 13 through 16. Uh, Again, just to kind of set it in bigger contrast of the the picture being painted, right? Think of this as kind of an abstract picture with monsters and visions and stuff. And one of the things that we're going to see as this unfolds is there's a contrast between a human who becomes an ultimate monster, right? The final beast, and between a human who becomes the son of man coming on the clouds, See that there's this contrast between two different characters. Revelation says one is given the power of the ancient dragon, the devil, right? So one is possessed by the devil. One is God himself, we would say, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we talk about this historically as the Trinity, that God is one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin to see this unfolded in a way that freaks out Daniel, right? Because this is one of the first major unfoldings of what we would call the Trinity, right? So we're like thousands of years later, and we've seen Jesus, and we've kind of learned more about this. But remember, this is kind of like a first revealing of this in this text. So it's a problem. It's a question to which Jesus is the answer. So verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Again, we have our images in our world. We have our favorite football team mascots. We have our emojis, you know. Um, I've tried to show my father-in-law how to use a smartphone before. You know, they're just emojis and, or just symbols and buttons. I just know what they mean. He doesn't know what they mean because he's not used to them, right? Same thing here. Ancient culture coming on the clouds. What is that? That just seems like not that important to us. It's hugely important. It's a recurring motif, a recurring symbol in ancient literature. In the Old Testament, we're told that Yahweh rides on the clouds, and a bunch of other Middle Eastern mythology, we're told that some king god rides on the clouds. So it's this common metaphor of power. The god rides on the clouds. And so to bring it back to the Old Testament, we're told Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, rides on the clouds. And here this vision says there's a son of man. What does that mean? A son of Adam, a a human that is riding on the clouds. That that does not compute. That, that doesn't make sense to a Hebrew. This is confusing to Daniel. He came, riding in the clouds, son of man, a human, came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But listen to this. That all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so we often think very literally clouds i grabbed a picture here of of clouds a beautiful texas sunset Um, clouds are one of the best things we got going for us in central texas if you're new from up north you're like where are the mountains where are the trees we don't have those but we have clouds we have really awesome clouds look at the clouds at like 6 30 in the morning look at the clouds you know, at sunset, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous. And so 
you're going to immediately want to think of that, right? Like physical clouds, coming on the clouds. And I think, again, in the future, we, we were told when Jesus rose up to go to heaven, the, the angels told the disciples, yeah, he's going to come back in the same way. He's going to come on the clouds. So we believe there's going to be a very literal, concrete fulfillment of this. He's going to come on the clouds. But there's also a by faith fulfillment of that, that right now we see him on the clouds, right? Like I don't look outside and see Jesus physically out there, but by faith, just as I know that God is judge, by faith, I also by faith see that Jesus is the one coming on the clouds. So there's a reference to this in the New Testament in Matthew 26. Jesus was silent when he was in his trial before the Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders who were very familiar with this passage in Daniel were trying him for blasphemy, for trying to say that he was the king, for trying to say that he should have some kind of dominion, right? And he was silent, and he did not defend himself. And the Jewish leader said in Matthew 26, 64, or in 63, they said, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus said to them in verse 64, Matthew 26, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus knows they've got the Old Testament memorized, and he knows that they know that he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. He says, hey, from now on, from this moment forward, you will see me coming on the clouds. Now again, I, I believe in double fulfillment. Scholars disagree on this, right? Some scholars would say, well, we think he was kind of talking like it was right then, but really it was going to come 3,000 years later when he returned physically in the clouds. Others would say he wasn't even talking about that. It was just the resurrection, and it was just kind of metaphorical. And by faith, I would say it's both, right? When Jesus rose from the dead, repeatedly the New Testament tells us he proved he was the Son of God. He proved he was the Daniel 7 Son of Man. He proved that he is the one with all power and all authority. Remember the final marching orders he gave to us in the, what we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. It's like, all, all authority has been given to me, and I'm going to be with you always, right? He is the Son of Man who comes on the clouds. He does have all dominion. We see that now by faith. Someday, we're going to see it very physically, very concretely, and that's going to be an amazing and glorious day. But what did the Jewish leaders do when Jesus said this? Jesus was like, yeah, you know that prophecy? You're going to see it fulfilled in me. What did they do? They said, you're blaspheming. This was this weird tension in the Jewish faith because they were saying, no, nobody can actually be the fulfillment of Daniel 7 because Daniel 7 is too weird and we don't like that and it's not okay. You know, like there's this problem they had built into their prophecies that they didn't know what to do with. And that's why I called this point, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the question that the Old Testament is just pregnant with, right? How, how can we both be saved by a human, a human king, a Messiah king, and how can we also only be able to be saved by God? Because no human can fix this wreck, right? Genesis 3.15 promises someday a son of Eve is going to be born that's going to conquer evil forever, that's going to crush the head of the serpent of the ultimate monster, and we know that fulfillment is in Jesus. And all the Hebrews saw that. And they're like, yeah, someday some human's going to come. But they're like, no, no human can do it. They've been taught again and again. All their earthly kings fail. 
All their earthly kings fall. None of them could really do it. So there's this tension built into the Old Testament that, that only Jesus can answer. There's also this tension between the judgment of God. God will judge all evil. He can't tolerate any evil at all. He can't tolerate it. And what does that do? That means no human can be saved. That means there is no hope unless there's a perfect sacrifice, right? God was telling the story that a sacrifice could come and that their sins could be forgiven through the sacrificial system. He was broadcasting that. He was telegraphing it. Yeah, a sacrifice will come. You can be forgiven. But there's still this problem like, but really? Like, really, a goat's going to take away my sins? I know my sins are still there. You know, like, there's just built-in tension. Hebrews tells us, the New Testament letter of Hebrews says it's all resolved in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to this tension that nothing else could answer. In verse 15, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. Must have been an angel in the court where he was seeing this vision in heaven. He says he approached him, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So even Daniel, seeing this revelation, was like, this doesn't make sense. How can a human share the throne with God? So the historic church, our declarations about who Jesus is, is that he's 100% human, and 100% God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can make sense of these stories. Only Jesus can, can tie up all these loose ends. We see this stress between God being judge, but God also being gracious. How does that work? Romans spends a lot of time unpacking that. One of my favorite verses in Romans is in Romans 3.26. Jesus was to show the righteousness of God so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is both. And only Jesus makes sense of that. Most world religions say that God is gracious, no big deal, don't worry about it. Or they say, God is the judge, you better get your stuff together, right? Mm -hmm. Only Christianity brings both of those concepts together in one place. We have both justice in God, evil will not be tolerated, and grace and mercy in a God who took our sins upon himself, who paid for our sins, who became our sacrifice, and his resurrection from the dead proves that he conquered the ultimate monster of sin and death. First Corinthians 15 says, yeah, there's even a worse monster than this fourth beast. There's even a worse, a worse monster, and that monster is sin and death, and Jesus defeated it through his death and resurrection. So how do we apply this one? Well, again, we got monsters that are coming. More monsters are coming. The world's going to get better or worse. Well, that's going to get worse before it gets better. What do we do? We don't fear the monsters. And the New Testament says, you know what? Sin and death are our ultimate monsters as well as this, this final fourth beast. And the devil is really a monster as well, kind of an ultimate monster of the reality we live in. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God. Put yourself under God's rule, Right? The way we might say it is this, we fear God more than we fear the monsters of this world. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, right? So the devil is kind of like a bully monster that because of Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't have actual power against us, and all we have to do is resist him. He's going to try to make our lives miserable. He's going to try to make us feel completely defeated by our 
uh, condemnation that we hear from his voice. 1 Peter 5.8 says it this way, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil's like a monster prowling around, it says, seeking someone to devour. So we live in a world of real monsters. The devil, the world, leaders of nations and empires, there are real monsters in this world. He says, be watchful. The Hebrew word for, for devil is Satan. You've heard that word before? Satan literally in Hebrew means the accuser. Devil is the Greek word, diabolos. Devil means literally in Greek, accuser. So how does this monster come against us primarily through accusation? You're no good. Give up. Don't even try. God can't love you. How do we answer him? Jesus is the answer. We preach the gospel to ourselves and to the attacks of the monster who condemns us. We preach the gospel to the monsters of this world. Remember Jesus is the answer. And then rebuke the monsters of this world with the truth of Jesus. He took my sins. He's given me his righteousness. When God looks at me by faith, he's pleased with me. I need to not say that in first person because you think I'm just talking about myself. When God looks at you by faith, he is pleased with you. When he sees you in Jesus, he loves you. I like to say it this way. He likes you, right? So we have this weird separation in our mind. Yeah, I know Jesus has to love me just like my mother does, but he doesn't really like me. No, he likes you. He's pleased with you because you're in Christ, because you're hidden in him, because Jesus is the answer. Okay, last point. Humanity is being renewed. Humanity is being renewed. We see this in a longer section. I'm going to kind of skip around, encourage you to read more of this, but he was asked, asking this uh, angel to give him interpretation, like, help me out, help me understand this. And just to set the stage, remember um, New Testament, Colossians 3.10, it's what we've been using for our invitation into worship. Colossians 3.10 says, the people of God who have faith in Jesus are being renewed in the image of our Creator. Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28 says, this is what humanity is for, to broadcast, to reflect the image of God. So the dominion that humanity has been given, which has been warped by sinful, beast-like, unjust rulers in our world, really all humans are to have some level of dominion. We are all kings and queens of creation made to reflect God's goodness, his love, and justice in the world. That's our vocation right? Like you might be a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, but your primary vocation, your number one vocation, your number one job is to glorify God, is to show his image, to be renewed in the image of God. So humanity is being restored. The image is being renewed within us. It's being broadcast into the world. So verse 17, let's pick it up there. These four beasts are four kings who will rise up out of the earth, right? So here's some interpretation we're getting. Verse 18 says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever, right? So contrast, again, big picture. Yeah, bunch of kingdoms in this world, bunch of chaos, bunch of human beings living by faith in the serpent beast, and then we become like beasts when we walk with the beast serpent but there are also those who are saints of the Most High, who are being set apart. Saint means holy. We're being made new. We're being restored. We're being renewed. And we will possess the kingdom forever and ever. 
Verse 19, Daniel says, And I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Again, remember, this is my understanding of kind of four immediate kingdoms, but that last kingdom evolving and getting weird and ten horns and four horns and a little horn and all that. He's like, I wanted to understand that. It was different. It was exceedingly terrifying. It's teeth of iron. It's claws of bronze. It devoured things in pieces. I wanted to understand this. Verse 21, it says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints... A real war is happening, right? So when I say don't fear the monsters, I don't mean life is going to be easy, right? I'm just saying more is happening. God is doing something beyond our suffering. This beast made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So there's going to be a sense in which we will be defeated in this world, and yet we will have final dominion. Do you see that? The New Testament calls this the way of the cross. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. The way by which we are going to be renewed in the image of the creator is walking by faith in Jesus, trusting that he is our ultimate joy and actually giving ourselves up for others. Romans 12 says, we see the grace that God has for us. And because of that grace that God has for us, because of God's mercy, Romans 12 says, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We give ourselves up. So the saints were prevailed over Verse 22, what's in verse 22? It's very important. Look at verse 22. Until the ancient of days came, and then judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. I'm going to skip down to verse 25. This beast is going to speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High shall think to change the times, the law. They'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This corresponds with the, the three and a half years stuff we see in Revelation. So crazy stuff's going to happen. It's going to wear out the saint. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. The New Testament calls this tribulation, distress, suffering. None of those are words we like, right? Verse 27. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most highest kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. We get to be a part of the ancient of days kingdom. Through Jesus, who is the answer, remember second point, through faith in him, we get to be a part of this. Colossians 3 says he's renewing his image in us. So by way of application, Colossians 3 says we are being renewed in our image as Colossians 3, 1 If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So we need to see ourselves on the throne with big brother Jesus. We need to remember Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. We're made to rule and reign. We are made to have dominion and leadership. He's renewing that image within us. Black Panther is a movie that's come up again in the news recently because Chadwick Boseman just passed away and everybody talked about like what a, just a great dude he was like as a real human, not just as a superhero in the movies, but just a good guy. And what was really interesting when Black Panther came out is a lot of African Americans really loved this movie because in our country, they'd had a history of being put down, right? Historically in our country, you know, all countries of the world have unique problems like that. In our country, African Americans had been put down and so this kind of mythology of black panther was seeing themselves represented as a superhero and as a king of this great mythical kingdom and really all literature has that kind of function right we saw this uniquely in that movie in that case in point but all of us have have seen visions of greatness 
in a movie or in a book that we connect with. We're like, yeah, that, that's what it would like for me to be a king, right? That's what it would be like for me to be a queen. That's what it would be like for me to live in peace and harmony and do great things, right? We get these little tastes of that in stories and in fairy tales. Colossians 3 says that's actually happening. Like, like we live in that kind of fairy tale. You, you see the end that gives you power to live through the stress of the here and now. You see that you really are seated with Christ in heaven. That's really the future. And by faith, there's a reality that that's true now. So Colossians says the way we live that out is then, Colossians 3.5 says, then we put to death sexual immorality, right? So Christians are people that are called to a different kind of morality. We put away sexual immorality, which is maybe valued and glorified in our culture. And we say, no, that's not for me because I'm a king, I'm a queen, I'm made to live differently. God has plans for me. He has a different ideal for my life. Paul goes on, he says, not just that, we put away anger and wrath and malice and slander. Why? Because I'm seated in heaven with Jesus. I belong to him. He goes on in verse 9, he says, don't lie to one another. You don't have to fake it with each other because we have a new identity in Christ. Who we are is who Jesus says we are. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to lie. He goes on, he says, in, in this world, the world of the church, the world of being the family of God, there's no Jew, Greek, Scythian, slave, free, right? Those categories by which the world judges our worth, Paul says that doesn't even count anymore, right? Because we have ultimate worth in Jesus. We are being renewed in him. We are being restored to our job to reflect his glory. Colossians 3.12 says, so then, because you're loved by God, put on compassion. So love other people. It's another application. We put away sexual immorality. We stop lying and slandering. We stop being so angry about everything. We start actually being compassionate and kind towards one another because God in Christ showed compassion towards us. We care with humility, meekness, and patience. And you know what? Even in this vision, we see that reflected in Daniel's life. Uh, look at this last little part, Daniel 7.28. He says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Why, why was he so alarmed, right? He's living on top of the world, right? He's, he's an important leader in these ancient kingdoms. He's being given special visions from God. Why is he alarmed? He's alarmed because he sees the suffering of the saints. In these visions, it's been revealed to him that the saints are going to get worn out, he says, the saints are going to be prevailed against before we finally rule and reign. Before the Ancient of Days fixes it all, makes all things right, wipes every tear from our face. I was reading one commentator talk about this, and I never thought about this before. It was like, you've got to be really gentle and close to wipe a tear from somebody's face. You ever thought about that? I don't think it had ever occurred to me, my wife and I have ongoing joke, I'm just like a little rougher than her, right? So I just, it just never occurred to me. Uh, she was even putting lotion on my hands because my hands are so rough, right? Like there's this sense that, that God is going to be that close to us. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to make all things right. That's, that's the future that we're headed to. And so we remember God is renewing us. God is giving purpose to our suffering. 
that even though there's going to be a sense in which the monsters of this world will prevail against us in some way, we will be hurt, we will be suffering, we will be struggling, God is giving purpose to that. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Follow me through suffering into exaltation, into being seated with me in heaven, trusting that the way of the cross is worth it. So final illustration. Um, This was a story that came out in July, a story that that I'm not a crier. This story made my eyes leak a little bit. Just a beautiful story of someone carrying their cross, right? Someone not being afraid of the monsters of this world. It was a story about a little boy who was seven. His little sister was maybe four or five, and they were outside playing, and a big, aggressive, monster-like dog came to attack them. I'm not trying to pick on dogs. I actually like dogs, okay? But just... Sorry, it just came up a couple of times in the stories. This horrible monster dog comes running at these two kids. And, and this little boy is definitely afraid of getting hurt, right? There's a sense in which we're always afraid of the monsters of this world. But he feared his little sister getting hurt more than himself getting hurt. And he pushed his little sister out of the way and he stepped into harm's way and told her to run home, run home, run home as fast as you can. And that dog tore him up. He survived. And there were pictures floating on the internet that were, that were terrifying. And yet when I look at this picture, this, this little boy's face, it was torn up and full of stitches. There's like this beauty there, right? It's this amazing vision of him. Of course he was afraid of that dog, but he was more afraid of his sister getting hurt. Of course, we're going to be afraid of the monsters of this world, but we trust that God is in control and he's going to use our suffering for his glory. He's going to imbue purpose to our suffering as we pick up our cross and follow him. We get to be involved in what Jesus is doing in this world. Yes, our ultimate hope is that God is in charge and that Jesus is the one who saves us. Our trust is in him, not in our following of him. But because what he has done is so good and so beautiful, what's going to happen? We're going to follow him. We're going to walk in his footsteps. and We're going to give ourselves up to serve others. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for these visions. And again, we confess some of this stuff is just bizarre. It doesn't, it doesn't always make sense to us in our culture, but we see the big picture. We see that this world is scary and broken. And we see, God, that we have a choice to either follow in the footsteps of the monsters and the serpents of this world or to trust you and what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you that you are the ultimate dragon slayer. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God that came into this scary world, that you suffered with us, but you not only suffered with us, you suffered for us and you took our sin and death upon yourself and you give us righteousness and life. You empower us to follow you. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.